0: I know Brother Kelvin's chomping at the bit to get up here, so I won't stand in his way. Brother Kelvin's continuing his subject of the unique teachings of the truth, and today dealing with the flesh and the spirit. Brother Kelvin's going to be speaking until um, 10 to 11, so hand it over Brother Kelvin. Thanks, Brother John, and uh, brothers and sisters. I'm going to go um, perhaps a little bit slower today, for the first minute, then after that we have to speed things up a little bit, just quickly to recap on the questions that we wish to answer in the course of these studies, and they're of course itemized up here on this slide. What is the truth? Does it matter what we believe or do? And of course the really big question, how should the truth affect us? And they're the things that we're hoping to cover in the course of this study. This is the path that we've taken, and you'll notice if you look at these, they're they're actually in pairs. Um, I probably haven't explained this so far, but the first two studies come as a pair. They're like a foundation that we've endeavoured to build about what is the truth to define it and the difference between truth and an incorrect concept of the truth and the revelation of God. Today we're going to deal with the flesh and the spirit. We need to lay this foundation so that we can deal with the subject tomorrow, which has to do with the spirit of God and how we understand the spirit of God. So these two subjects come as as pairs as well. And so we can come to our third study, which is really I hope getting to the real issue at hand, and that is God dwelling in us, God's purpose in creation. This concept of God manifestation we talk about at times, but I, I think sometimes we don't define as clearly or as precisely as we should. We need to grasp what the flesh is before we can understand what the spirit is. The Bible teaches by two methods, I think, two primary methods. One is comparison and the other one's contrast. And when you see that, when you understand that, you find it everywhere. You find it in the parables, of course, as we saw this morning. But you see it all the way through the scripture, the way the prophets and the apostles and Christ himself, the master teacher, the way he teaches by comparison and by contrast. And when we're talking about the flesh and the spirit, we're talking about two things that are going to be contrasted to each other. So we're going to have to deal somewhat with the um, flesh and how the scripture defines it. Now, I don't wish to. Define it perhaps the way we sometimes do because this area is, a, is, a, is an area of some contention in our community. I mean, not talking about today, but historically it's been an issue of some contention, issues over synonymy and metonymy, issues over cleanness and uncleanness of the flesh. I don't really want to go into those areas. I don't want to... Because I think that they're probably, in this context, side issues... We need to understand what the flesh is and how the scripture defines it. And we're going to use scriptural terms so that we can lift our minds and to see things through God's eyes. That's really where we're trying to get to. We don't want to cloud the issues with all sorts of technical jargon. So I'm going to stick to the words of scripture. It's an important subject to understand. And to understand it correctly, because it was Paul who said this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 13. If we live after the flesh, if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Death and life are serious outcomes, brothers and sisters, very serious outcomes. Therefore, it's a serious subject. And what Paul is saying is somewhat counterintuitive. It's sort of the opposite. How do you live through dying? Mortify, that means to put to death, it brings life. What does Paul mean? And what do the scriptures mean when they speak about the flesh and the spirit? And of course, that's what we hope to cover in the course of these two studies. Just what are the deeds of the body? he talks about that up here, see? Through the Spirit you do mortify the deeds of the body. And how do we mortify them so that we might live? Given the seriousness of this, we need to not only understand what it means, but also we need to be confident that we're walking in the Spirit. Very important that we walk in the Spirit. Let's look a little bit further in Romans eight, and it's a marvelous chapter. It's one of these chapters in the Bible I just don't think we read often enough. I think we shy away from it a little bit because of some of the terminology. The next two, this one and the next one, we're going to look at it quite extensively. Romans chapter eight, verse 7, five to seven. We'll read this word for word. It says, "For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh; they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit." For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Paul introduces concepts here which are deep and they're far-reaching and they affect every one of us as we'll go on to show. From reading and thinking about what Paul is saying, it's clear that the flesh and spirit are striving for the same thing. And that is control of your mind. Control of the mind is control of the person and control of the body. Because your mind controls your body. The mind is, this is how I define the mind, is the real us. It's the thinking or consciousness that defines us, who we are. And consequently, what comes from us, how we live. In this life, there can be no peace between the flesh and the spirit. They are at enmity. They're at war. And this enmity is declared by God. It's not a man-made enmity. It's declared by God. Because the real battle is about whose will is going to prevail. Whether it's the mind and the thinking of the flesh, which is manifest by man. Or the thinking of God, which is revealed by God in heaven through various means, as we'll see. So what force, this subject brings us to a choice. We talked at the very start with that diagram of the two roads, the choice, the truth about making choices. What force impels us or compels us in life? What what force dominates our life? The Bible reveals that there's only two forces that exist in the world and that they're at war with each other, as we've just read. There's the flesh... Or the thinking of the flesh, which is driven, motivated by lust, fear, pride, ignorance, rebellion against God. And it's manifest or revealed in our love of the world and the things of the world. This form of thinking only expresses the will of the flesh or the will of man. And contrary to that is the spirit of God, which is the thinking of the spirit. And it's driven or motivated by the knowledge of God and of God's love. And it's shown by God's character and way, written or engraven in our heart. Not on the surface, but in our heart. And it's manifest in our love of the Father and it's expressed or manifested by the will of our Father in Heaven being outworked in us, the things we do, how we behave, how we speak, how we treat each other, how we treat the stranger. And if you don't feel this enmity, brothers and sisters, then we're lost to the flesh. And there's numerous people in society who don't feel this enmity. And of course I hope it's not with us. But we need to feel it. We need to feel this struggle. Galatians 5 verse 17. Paul says this. He says the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. What these words are essentially saying is is that there's a great contest going on. And it's going on in the hearts and the lives of all believers. And it's these two forces at play that are trying to dominate us and take control of us. And he says, well, if the spirit's strong, you won't be able to do the things that you would. In other words, your body and your instincts and society, which is a manifestation of that, is going to try and drive you one way and God's trying to get you to go a different way. And there's this struggle that's going on in the hearts of every faithful man and woman. The enmity commenced at the fall and has been part of man's history ever since that time. It's been seen in the great and long warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Genesis 3.15 You know the references, I'm sure. It's instructive to observe that this conflict between the flesh and the spirit is seen in even the most simplest of scriptural teachings and stories. Whether it's between Cain and Abel, between Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Israel and the Philistines, David and Goliath, David and Saul, Israel and God's prophets, or it's Jesus' conflict with his contemporaries. It's the same conflict, brothers and sisters. However, the subject goes much deeper than this. That's just the surface. For these, con- this, this, these conflicts about the outworking of forces that operate deep within us. Each one of us share it. It was this enmity that Jesus removed at his death on the cross. The devil, serpent, sin power was destroyed in his flesh. Hebrews 2.14. That's what John 3.14 is about. About the serpent being lifted up. So important is this concept that any who confesses not that Jesus came in the flesh is declared antichrist. You see, they miss... The point if you don't understand who Jesus was and his connection to the flesh you misunderstand the whole work of God and you come under God's curse so let's remember Paul's summary in this section of Romans they that are in the flesh cannot please God What complicates this, and and it sounds simple, but what complicates it is that many whose thinking is quite clearly of the flesh think that they're of the spirit. The Jews didn't think they were of the flesh. And we'll see that when we look later on at John chapter 8. The whole contest in John chapter 8 is about whose father are we you see they say their father was Abraham they said their father was God they said they weren't born of fornication and Jesus says they had a different father because their thinking was wrong they like Eve have been deceived by carnal human fleshy reasoning and Human, fleshy philosophy. Otherwise called false teachings in the scriptures. We talked about that in the, the last study. In fact, you know, deceit and being deceived is the single biggest danger that the people of God face. Because plausible reasoning is exactly that. It's plausible. It sounds good, just like the serpent's words to weave. It sounds rational. It sounds reasonable. We are warned constantly in the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, about this problem. As in all things, the foundations of these things are found in the book of Genesis. The flesh is naturally offended by those of the spirit, and it will mock It will persecute and it will destroy them. Whether it be Cain destroying Abel. Whether it be the examples that I've put up here in these references. You find that contest going on all the time. But here's the important thing that we must identify. There is only flesh and spirit. There's no grey area, there's nothing between. Don't think you can walk two ways. As we will see, who we serve is a result of a choice that we make. We must remember, though, that our default condition, our bias, using modern language, is towards the flesh. Because we're comfortable with the flesh. And because we're born of flesh. We're born in, with instinctive responses. And I'll show you a diagram in a, in a moment, just a, perhaps a two-dimensional diagram, but it sort of shows how it works. Otherwise called the law of sin in our members. So I use my little diagrams here. As I said, I like diagrams because I, I see the, things, things, the world in diagrams and pictures. It's easy to remember them. This is our natural, our animal way of thinking. This is our life as we're born into it as children. We naturally love the world. And it's manifest when we are guided by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And when we conform to the world. Now, little children, as lovely as they are, and I've got a great empathy for children, I've got 20 grandchildren. And I love every one of them, but every one of them is carnal. Now, our job is to try and change them from being carnal to being spiritual, to being sons of Adam to sons of God. That's what the truth is about, brothers and sisters. But we have to first of all understand what the flesh is. If you don't, you will think that you can somehow blend the flesh and the spirit together and to morph it somehow into one composite being. It can't be done. The flesh will always dominate. So let's have a little bit of a definition summary here. The flesh is defined primarily in the scripture by what it produces. In the scriptures, the flesh is first and foremost defined by what it produces, its behavior. Many of our responses are instinctive. And if you poke me in the eye, I'll probably poke you back. If you went back thirty five years, I'd probably punch you back. That's just the flesh. Okay? God's trying to get us to deal with that. They are instinctive responses. We try to protect the identity, the being, in many, many different ways. They are automatic responses. In a real sense, they're of the flesh. That means they when it says of in the scriptures, it's talking about born of. They are produced by it naturally. And they originate within us, from inside of us. In this sense, we're, of course, speaking in a figurative language when we refer to the flesh. Our flesh itself has no mind. If you cut off a bit of flesh, it doesn't think. But it works in close coordination with our minds. It's like it's, it's an extension of our minds, Brother Thomas, I think, uses this term brain flesh. It's an interesting term. But it's referring to the natural being. It's our natural mind from infancy. Consider Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 to 21. In the context there, he says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, Wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revellings, and the such like. It sort of defines humanity. And he says, of which I tell you, I've told you before and I've told you in time past that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Make no doubt about it. Have no doubt, brothers and sisters, if you walk this way, if you manifest these characteristics, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. I just want to show you a, a reference that we don't look at perhaps very closely in John chapter 6. We read John 6 all the time, particularly at baptism and teach at first principles. But there's some interesting words in there. Notice how Paul carefully chooses his words. He says that lusts spring from the mortal body, naturally. There it is there, Romans 6, verse 12. I love this reference. Let not sin sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. I don't know if you would noticed it before. and You can see those other references there saying the same thing, and I'll, I'll look at those in just a moment. Sin is not the flesh itself, but sin is spoken of as a law residing in the flesh. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. Look at the connection. It's sin. It these two words are connected, and these two words here: mortal body, lust thereof. You see, our body produces lust naturally. And we can't control that. That just happens. We see, we smell, we have senses, we're connected to the world, but it's our response to them. Whether we obey the lusts that spring naturally from our mortal bodies, or we don't respond to them. You see, it's a choice. I'll show you a little mind map in a moment. I think how it defines it in some sense. Jesus was connected to the flesh and to sin. I think that's what Brother Ron was saying in his study, that we shouldn't see Jesus as a paper cutout. He was, and we shouldn't define the atonement or the things of God that way. We must see him as a man tempted in all points, like as we are. Although Jesus' birth was by divine intervention with God as his father, he himself was born of a woman. And therefore fully a son of man, and as such, he was tempted in all points like as we are. Hebrews 4:15, very emphatic. Yet he was different to us in one particular reason in that he did not sin. He chose to do his father's will. He was therefore in the same flesh and blood as us, otherwise called in the scriptures sinful flesh. These references support this conclusion. You can look at those in your own time, and I'm sure you're all very familiar with them. So let's look at the this little model that I put together now this I'm um, um, explain in advance it's only a two dimensional model. okay it, You can never really explain these things um, any other way, but it, it's sufficient for what we're trying to talk about. Here's a picture of me when I woke up one morning. My wife took that and I was very angry. You can see that red bit and the green bits in the back. It's just sitting there in reserve. I have no idea. I stole it off the internet actually. But this is the way we are, okay? And what happens is we have inputs. And our inputs are via our senses. Now there's five primary senses. There's probably others as well. But there's five primary senses. We see, we hear, we smell, we touch, we taste. And these are like connectors that connect us to our environment and they they come in and our experience with life comes in through these senses and we have an output i call it language we have words a common way we use language we have body language how i behave you know in the facial expressions and maybe our movements sometimes and then there's actions what we do so we have inputs and outputs but what happens in the middle between one and the other is the work of the flesh or the spirit now there's two forces primary forces at play here and we have to exercise choice which is an exercise of will and choice is governed by two things primary things as I said please don't criticise it too much it's only a two dimensional model it's by our instincts down here my flesh which is craving, when I wake up in the morning, I'll eat a cup of coffee or I smell food and my body reacts and it creates a desire and it moves me down to the kitchen. Or our beliefs. Every person, every human being is motivated by these primary forces. Now I know, as I said, there's memory involved and there's all sorts of things I've got little definitions next to these things. You see, our instincts are pre-programmed thinking and control mechanisms designed to protect the individual. So I I don't put my hand on something that's red hot because I know it's going to damage my body. So I, I pull my hand away. It protects me. Breathing, hunger, heartbeat, urges... Self-protection. They're natural instincts. They're benign in themselves. And they're good in themselves in as much as they protect the individual. But Jesus felt these things as well. He had the same instincts. And you think about it in the context of Jesus facing the cross. You see, there's the contest. The will of God is that the flesh needs to be mortified. It's to be crucified, but every instinct and every fiber in his being is endeavoring to preserve him. And this is what the spirit does. And this is what God reveals to us is that he reveals to us his will and his will is contrary to the will of the flesh. And this great contest is going to exist inside of us. On the other side, we have beliefs. Now, I know this isn't a comprehensive explanation of beliefs, but beliefs are our acquired thinking. It's not what we're born with, it's our acquired thinking. It's generally the product of our upbringing, our education, our associations, our peer groups. And beliefs, in some sense, can regulate our instincts. They can't overcome them totally, but to some sense, they can regulate our instincts. You know, men, in the past, and it probably still happens will go to war and sacrifice themselves and die for their beliefs. Paul talks about that in the book of Romans. Beliefs are hugely powerful. But you need to make sure that your beliefs are soundly founded. This is the thing, and this is why deception... And lies are so corrosive and so powerful, so dangerous. Now, this is a static model, as I said. Memory and habit adds more complexity and more layers of complexity to this. Nevertheless, it does show us the vital importance of knowledge and beliefs and just how important they are. Now, I've got another little model here. Consider the Solancia family of trees. Now, they're called the nightshades. I just thought I'd be a little bit smart here by putting that up there so I could show that I looked on the Google thing. They introduce, they include the humble potato, the tomato, and poisonous varieties such as the deadly nightshade plant. Pictured below are two members of the nightshade family. This one down here, tomatoes. This one over here is commonly believed to be deadly nightshade. It grows in our gardens... Supposedly poisonous. Are they safe to eat? It's commonly believed that one will nourish you and the other will kill you. Is it true? How do you know? Where does the knowledge and this belief come from? You see, beliefs are really important. They're powerful. And belief springs from knowledge, produces belief, causes to make choices and then produces behaviour. We have to be careful, brothers and sisters, that our beliefs are properly founded and grounded on the things of God. Otherwise, we'll make poor choices, wrong choices, and we'll go the wrong way. You know, Once upon a time, in most of the world, people wouldn't eat tomatoes. They thought they were poisonous. They thought that they were the fruit that Eve gave to Adam in the garden. They thought that they were deadly poison. They come from South America, by the way, tomatoes. They were introduced to the world. Now they're one of the most common foods. You see, the belief changed with knowledge. In fact, I don't think this thing is poisonous. That's why I asked you, is it poisonous? I looked up, I think it's called Blackberry Nightshade. And it grows in our garden. It looks like it's poisonous. I don't eat them, please. But um, I believe that it isn't poisonous. We just think it is. Now, what happens is, is, that these challenges and these, 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 we are faced in life with choices. We've got to exercise discernment and choice day by day. And by reason of use we have our senses exercised. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. We are told in the Scriptures, in the Word, that we need experiences to exercise our senses and that by this means that our ability to discern accurately and faithfully increases. We need to spiritually grow from babes to adults. God wants to mature us And it's experiences and these choices in life that are going to ensure this growth and this development. This is why trial is so important. It's important for our character development and why God allows these trials to come into our lives. At times God brings trials, while at other times he watches over them. But we are assured that God is in control. This is the way and part of the way God and of God and the outworking of his declared purpose. So let's look at some of these references here. John five verse fourteen. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, which means mature, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised. To discern between both good and evil, the two Greek words here are fascinating words. I'm sure you're all familiar with them, kalu and kaku. And this, they were told, was a test that they used to use for students of Greek when they were children. They would get them to write out these two words because they look the same. The only difference is this letter here is. L here and this K here. They look the same, but they are vastly apart in their meaning. You see, it takes discernment to see the difference between good and evil. And that discernment and that maturity only comes with exercise, experience, and trial. James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience that patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect or mature entire wanting nothing 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 7 the trial of your faith be much more precious than of gold that perisheth you see god brings trial to mature you not to punish you but to mature you very important to note the difference God's desiring truth in the inward parts. God's trying to create within you a new spirit, a new way of thinking. It's not one that's natural. It's not your default condition, brothers and sisters. It's one that he creates in us. It is a form of thinking that is unnatural to us. Yet we are capable of attaining it. God wants us to voluntarily, willingly adopt his way of thinking. And to facilitate this work we need one very important quality which is available to everybody. Yes, truth in the inward parts. But look at these words. Psalm 32. It's so beautiful. This is the time of David's sin with Bathsheba when he hid himself from God. Because that's what sin does. It makes us embarrassed like Adam and Eve who hid themselves and clothed ourselves. We hide from God. And God revealed and exposed David's sin to bring him to maturity. And David saw things like he'd never seen them before. And he says here, this is what God's looking for. In whose spirit there is no guile, there's no deceit. God wants us to be honest. There's nothing else we can bring to God. There's no other quality that matches this. The good and honest heart in the parable of the sower. There it is, John 8, verse 15. This is what God needs us to bring to him. This honesty, brothers and sisters, this form of honesty and openness, and God can work with that. Isn't it beautiful? You don't need that high IQ to open that door, pull the push sign and all that sort of stuff. You don't need that, brothers and sisters. All you need is this. Now, this brings, of course, to us a whole bunch of ideas, and I've I'd like got to go through these. Because I'm taking too much time again. In light of this information given to us in the Word, and our believing what the Word says, Paul therefore gives advice to disciples on how to deal with the all pervasive law of sin and death and the deadly influences of the flesh. He gives advice to it. Paul's advice is to walk in the Spirit. And reject the influence of the flesh. In fact, the only way to effectively deal with the flesh is to voluntarily crucify it. That's why the Lord's example is so powerful. That is that we, in this beautiful section of Galatians chapter 2, we are dead with Christ. We are identified with him. Our mind is one with him. And it's that form of agreement when we align with him that brings us forgiveness and fellowship with God, identification with the work of Christ. And it's through the exercise of faith that we make these hard choices. Choices that are often contrary to both our instincts and society's norms. You can look at these references yourself. Galatians five verse sixteen. This I say: Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfil the lust of the flesh. Galatians five nineteen. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, and he goes on to give a list of them. But the fruits, wise, the fruits of the Spirit in verses twenty two to twenty five, are these: love, joy, peace, long suffering. And Look how he finishes this section about the fruits of the Spirit. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh and the affections, which means the passions and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, sorry, if we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit, manifest these things in a way of life, a choice. So let's just summarise this where we're up to. Flesh. When the scriptures speak of the flesh, we are referring to everything that has its origins in the physical world, the world below. By everything we mean living beings, people made of flesh and all the products of these beings including lusts, thoughts, actions which are the result of the natural laws and lusts at work in contrast to the ways of God. All of which by the way is under a curse and it's called the law of vanity in the book of Romans. And God's done this on purpose that men might hope. He hasn't done it as a form of absolute punishment. And of course, that's the point of Romans chapter 8, verse 20. He's subject to the world, to vanity that men might hope. They might look for something better. He's looking for you, for those who are here, to reach forth the hand and take of these things, the things of the Spirit. Now, I know this is not the way we normally explain it, but if you look at it, flesh is of natural origin. The Spirit is is of supernatural origin. I hope everyone's not walking up because they heard that. I don't think they're getting ready for a morning tea. When the scriptures speak of the spirit, they're referring to everything that has its origins with the Father in heaven. That's what we mean by supernatural origin. It doesn't come from here. It comes from above. And everything, we include Christ, angels, Saints, providence, God's word, prophecy, dreams, visions and all the gifts of God, whether they are received directly or indirectly from God. All of these are of God and therefore of God's spirit. We'll define that more clearly tomorrow as we deal with the spirit. The flesh and the spirit are at enmity, at war on many fronts, particularly over control of the mind and therefore control of the person, control of society, control of religion and control of the world. This enmity is of God, as we said before. And we must be part of this warfare. You can't be a conscientious objector in this. You can't be a a neutral country like Switzerland. In this warfare, you are called to engagement. For now, it's largely battled in the spiritual realm, in ideas and beliefs, which is, of course, what Ephesians 6 verse 12 is about. So Paul says, we looked at this reference yesterday, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3, he fears for them as serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. So your minds, notice that, your minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The word simplicity is the Greek word haplos. And it means simple or single in contrast to diplos, which means double, says Vine, the expositor, in his dictionary. The idea has to do with singleness. And there's my little mind model there. That's what God's trying to do, I think, is to create within us this knowledge, this information, and this experience that we might manifest. You're trying to take control of the way you think But he wants you to bring your minds to him willingly. Now, God is for us. Please, when we think about these great things of God and we think of our own failures and the trips and the stumbles we make, constantly remind ourselves, and this section again in Romans chapter 8, said, such a wonderful section of scripture. What should we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? This is how much God's on our side. He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Again, in Philippians chapter 1, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean, unfortunately, that we will... Not experience or be exempt from the many circumstances and trials in life. They will come, brothers and sisters. It does mean this, that God will be with us through them all. He will never abandon us. And he will bring us to maturity if we continue to trust in him and believe in his power to work in our lives. The scriptures are emphatic from start to finish. To escape the flesh, therefore... God has provided a way. We need a new beginning. We need to be born again, which is the whole principle that Jesus came to teach people about. And to work his purpose in and through us, it's vitally important that we grasp the absolute the necessity of a new beginning. It's just not taking the old flesh and giving it a bit of education and building it up a little bit. And making a bigger, stronger man, as the world does, as Greek philosophy does, and all philosophy does, in fact. God's trying to impress us with the need for death. That we might be born again. Not that we might die, that we might be born again. We've been born under a constitution of sin, a law of sin and death. We need to escape this inevitable situation. We need a new start, a new beginning, a new life from God, our Father. With God as our Father, so that we're no longer connected to Adam and the curse attached to him. Consider the example of Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus, a great teacher in Israel. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, Verily or truly, truly, I say to you, except the man be born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus was amazed that Nicodemus didn't understand this first principle. Are you a master in Israel and you don't know these things? Are you the teacher? That's what it means. One of the prime teachers in Israel. And you don't understand this? You see, they thought that their birth and connection to Abraham as his physical descendants gave them automatic entry. A ticket into the door just as we, if we're brought up in the truth, might have that same misconception. It's not true, brothers and sisters. And this form of birth is quite difficult because it involves death to bring about birth. Although this is a profound concept, it's an elementary principle in the scriptures. He should have known it. This is, we call the principle of the two federal heads. I know you're all very familiar with it. Adam is the head of all. We're all his children. We're all sons of men. And by connected to Adam by birth, naturally. We inherit from Adam, not the punishment of his sins, but the consequences of his sins. The law of sin and death in our members, a nature prone to sin and mortality. And as in Adam, all die, says the scripture, Corinthians 15. God's raised up another, like Adam, who's the federal head, a head of all believers. And in Christ, we are born again by the power of faith. We receive from Christ freedom from the law of sin and death so that sin no longer reigns in us and therefore we should walk in a newness of life. And in the end, in Christ we'll all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. I know you're very familiar with this. We're going to go through these next slides very quickly because uh, I've done it again. Baptism, and this is why it's fundamentally important, gives us this new beginning. Not because of the washing in water, because of the change in thinking that that water represents. It's death buried with him by baptism into death. It's death of the old man. It's the birth of a new. It's even so we should walk in newness of life. We'll talk about that tomorrow. This newness of life, brothers and sisters, is so powerful. And we sometimes mix it up. It isn't the life that Jesus walked when he was on the earth. It's the resurrected Christ. It's a life that's powered by the Spirit, totally. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. You of survive here relates to the life we should now live, a life free from the minion of sin, the heritage we receive from Adam. On the basis of our faith and being in Christ Our identification with him. God accounts us free from the bondage to the law of sin and death which came from Adam. The choices we now make and the life we must now live must manifest this new spirit of the risen Christ. Our new life in Christ is a result of God's grace or favour to us. He accepts us on this basis. And it's conditional upon our faith in him. Baptism also represents the answer of a good conscience. Someone who hears and responds in good faith. That's what that means. It expresses our trust and belief in God that he will bring us through this through life. And it joins us to the promises. Galatians 3 verse 26 to 29. We're all very familiar with this. It connects us to the promises. You see it has more than simply one meaning. God answers the nurture nature debate in human psychology, and there's this big debate about the influences of nurture. You know how what you're born with, your traits, and what your upbringing, what effect they have upon it. Baptism answers both of them because baptism isn't simply the death of our works; it's a death of the person. God draws a line a rules a line under everything all your experiences all your sins and your transgressions but not only that everything that goes back to your physical connection to adam he draws a line under it he deals with the whole problem so if you're carrying a load of guilt it can all be put away god's not interested in the past he's interested in the new man the future god draws a line under this I'll go through this one very... I'll just pass over this one about the warning about false teachers. It's a very important warning that's repeated over and over again. I want to put this a reference up here from Brother Thomas. It's a beautiful reference. A man may be a theologian profoundly skilled in all the questions of divinity... He may be well versed in the mythology of the heathen world. He may be able to speak all the languages of the nations, compute the distances of the orbs to orbs, weigh them in a scale of rigid calculation. He may know all science and be capable or able to solve all mysteries. But if with all this he be ignorant of the things of the spirit, if he know not the true meaning of the Bible, he seemeth only to be wise while he is in fact a fool. You know, you may think in my earlier comments that um, I perhaps downplay the pioneers in one sense, but I don't think so, brothers and sisters. We stand on their shoulders. You know, we can only see as clearly as we can because they gave us the way. We see clearly, brothers and sisters, because we can stand upon the shoulders of their works and their, what they've given to us in the, in the gifts of their writing and the things that they've shown to us from the scriptures, how to think, how to see. How to interpret the world, how to live the truth. Great heritage, brothers and sisters, a beautiful thing. Faith connects us to this great warfare. I'm just going to go to the last slide so this will be the first time we've ever put the last slide up. You can ring the bell, that's okay. I'll be very quick. I just want to summarize it so I don't sort of forget what I had to say. In this study, we've covered the following information the path to life is through death. That is, death to the flesh and all its, it produces, all its products, the whole person. The flesh refers to our default sinful condition that is capable of thinking only upon selfish things. To overcome the flesh, we must manifest the spirit, all works and thinking that comes from God. We must also understand and appreciate the vital importance of divine revelation. Without that knowledge, without God revealing himself himself, we would have no idea. It gives us essential information on how we can walk with God. Be careful what you believe. Beliefs are very powerful, hugely powerful. Knowledge, good knowledge, true knowledge produces faith and faith produces actions and behaviour. If we walk with the truth then expect trials. In fact, we're told in the scriptures to embrace them. Because they will develop your faith. God will work through that and will bring about a great victory. You've seen the end of the Lord it says in John, James chapter 5 of Job's experiences. Faith is our part. We allow God, we invite God into our lives to work in us. But beware of false spirits, brothers and teachers. False teachers, because they will deceive Now, next class, we'll take this to the next level, which deals with the spirit on a level perhaps we haven't considered before. Thank you.